church. Love for the church is a mark of the Christian. Devotion to the church of Jesus Christ is the duty as well as the privilege given to us as God's children. The reason for this is to be found in what the church is. She is the bride of Christ. She is the dwelling place of God. She is the mother of believers. She is the body of Christ. You, Calvary, Protestant Reformed Church, are, by the grace of God, a faithful manifestation of that body. Therefore, the believer in Christ loves the church even as he loves Christ, the head of the church. We give expression to that love as we gather on the Lord's Day and sing from Psalm 84, How lovely, Lord of hosts to me, the tabernacles of thy grace, so How I long, yea, faint to see thy hallowed courts, thy dwelling place. We can think of Psalm 137 and the mournful cry of the captives in Babylon who sat down and wept and they remembered Zion, the church. Jerusalem was a pile of rubble. And her honor lay in the dust, her people were scattered. The public worship of Jehovah on Mount Zion had been abolished. And their captors jeeringly required of them a song of mirth and joy. And yet their harps could not comply. No mirth, no joy was possible while they were separated from Zion. In Babylon they made a vow. O Zion, fair God's holy hill, wherein our God delights to dwell, let my right hand forget her skill, if I forget to love thee well. Let my tongue from utterance cease, if any earthly joy to me be dear as Zion's joy and peace. Already centuries before our text was written, the inspired psalmist sang, Zion founded on the mountains, God thy maker loves thee well. He has chosen thee most precious. He delights in thee to dwell. God's own city, who can all thy glory tell? Yes, indeed, who can all thy glory tell? And that's really the theme of this letter to the Ephesians, the glory of the church in Christ. It's what Paul describes from the outset. He begins with the apostolic benediction and then adds, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ. And that's the key. In Christ. It runs through the entire epistle. 
always showing forth the glory of God as it's reflected by us in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so it is that we have that well-known familiar contrast at the beginning of this second chapter. And you bought God. And the apostle describes our natural depravity as we're conceived and born in sin, reminding us that we were dead in trespasses and sins, a part of this present evil world under the power of Satan, fulfilling the desires and lusts of the flesh by nature, children of wrath, even as all the rest. But then, thanks be to God, you have the great contrast. But God, rich in mercy, motivated by his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive, raised us together with Christ, even exalted us with him in heavenly glory, so that in Christ all our salvation is complete and eternally secure. Paul goes on to remind us of the distinction between Jew and Gentile in the days of old, even while God was gathering in his elect from the Jews, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. Notice what we read in verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. Can you imagine anything worse than that? A more dreadful misery? No hope? But God now also gathers his elect from the Gentiles so that we who were far off are brought near. And that middle wall of separation is broken away. We are no more strangers and foreigners, but we are fellow citizens belonging to the same household of God for Jew and Gentile alike all God's elect, there is that divine assurance for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. And the apostle is given to see that church, God's elect, holy, Catholic church, sees that church as it's being gathered also in this present time, as we are members of it, and as we as a congregation are a manifestation of it, and as we are used by God toward the ingathering of the saints and the completion of God's church, which is to say, his house, even in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this light that we consider our text this morning under the theme, Building the House of God. And we notice, first of all, the house, secondly, the foundation, and finally, the construction. Now, the Apostle Paul is clearly using a figure 
And yet at the same time, he applies that figure to its reality. He uses the figure of a foundation and explains that this foundation is the apostles and prophets. He refers to the cornerstone and immediately adds that this is Christ Jesus. He speaks of the house built upon the foundation, fitly framed together, and points out to us that this house is the dwelling place of God, where God dwells through the Spirit. And then he concludes that we also are set into that building as separate stones, each one in our place, and yet together making that perfect unity of the church, the house of God. The apostle no doubt had in mind the temple of the old dispensation. That temple was the center of Israel's typical worship. Canaan was the promised land flowing with milk and honey. But the center of Canaan was Jerusalem, the holy city, And the heart of the holy city was the temple where God dwelt behind the veil in the most holy place. And there at the temple stood the altar of burnt offering as a constant reminder that Israel was a sinful people. And yet at the same time, that altar symbolized the blood of atonement that took away the sins of the people. And Christ was represented there in the priest as well as in the sacrifice, the lamb. And through Christ, the people had access to God. There, God's people experienced covenant fellowship with the only true and living God. There they experienced the unity, the bond of faith that united them in the Lord even as they looked forward to the better things to come. A city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, they, the church, were, after all, the house of God, the dwelling place of God. God was in the midst of them, and therefore they stood unmoved, It's with this figure in mind that the Apostle speaks of a building that's under construction. It's gradually taking form and shape as every stone is put into its own place, each one fitting in with all the other stones and with all the rest of the building, ultimately to reveal its complete and perfect unity in Christ. Forgetting the figure for a moment and bearing in mind that these are not dead but living stones, the apostle feels free to say that this building grows, grows like a plant, grows to its full capacity. Or to go back to the figure again, grows into an immense and beautiful temple of God. So there are certain things about this building this house that we should notice. First of all, very basic, 
to a building is a plan, of course. Even if we desire to build a church building or a house, we carefully prepare the plans. We likely hire an architect to draw up the prints of our proposed structure so that every detail of the house may be worked out before time down to the most minute parts. We plan the size and the shape of the building, the number of doors and windows, the location of each one. We determine the number of rooms and their size, and we decide on all the various materials that are going to be used, even down to the electrical outlets and the heating and cooling units and every other detail of the building. And all this is done really before much of any work is started or even the foundation laid. But now this, of course, is just a vague earthly picture of God's sovereign and eternal predestination of his church. Eternally, God has before him his glorious house as it will be realized in all its perfection in the new creation. And we cannot say that God made those plans for his house or that he gradually formulated them in his mind as if there were a span in eternity when God was without the perfect house that he builds. God does not change. God does not grow richer in carrying out his eternal thoughts according to the purpose of his will. The sovereign architect eternally has before him his church, even in Christ. Christ is the great servant in his house. And in Christ, he has before him, even in his heart and mind, the body of Christ, the church chosen in Christ unto everlasting life. God has chosen Christ as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the eternal cause and the ultimate purpose of all of God's works. Who but the divine Son, the perfect likeness and reflection of Father's glory could hold such a unique place in the mind of God. And God gave to Christ a people chosen in Christ to show forth the praises of God's name. That people consists of the definite number of the elect, no more, no less, but each one chosen to have his or her own place in the church of God. Christ is the head. We are the members of his body. And as the head cannot exist without the body, so also the body cannot exist without the head. Christ is the cornerstone. We are the stones of God's temple. Each one fits in their own place according to the eternal and divine wisdom. No one else could fit in that place. And without each place being filled, the temple would not be complete. Its unity and harmony and beauty would be spoiled. 
God would not attain his glory. But let us not forget that that also applies to the scaffolding of the building. Yes, God sovereignly chooses his people unto everlasting life, but he also determines the reprobate to perish in their sins. And even the reprobate must serve their purpose toward the construction of God's temple, even as the chaff serves the wheat. In spite of themselves, they are the scaffolding used by God during this present time to erect his church. At the present, we can have difficulty sometimes even distinguishing between the building and the scaffolding. But God knows his own. And ultimately, the scaffolding is pulled away and burned. And the building stands forth in all its splendor to the praise of the master builder, the almighty God. In close connection, we have to notice that the church of God answers perfectly to the plans and purposes of the architect in unity, harmony, perfection, beauty. And here, beloved, we have to be careful for we may not regard things and judge things as we see them here and now with these natural eyes. But we must look with the eye of faith upon the things we do not see. In faith, based upon God's word of truth, we confess, as we will this evening, and holy Catholic Church. And that bears renewed emphasis today. The very idea of a holy Catholic or universal church gathered from every nation, tongue, and tribe as taught in the scriptures, and specifically here in our text, that whole idea is ridiculed and scorned and despised. And shameful things are spoken of this church in her true spiritual essence. Men may seek an outward, superficial unity consisting of people with all kinds of different beliefs coming together so that numerically the church can appear strong and pretentious in the midst of the world. But the antithetical position of the church over against the world of unbelief is often denied compromise with the world is sought. Much of the nominal church busies herself with a social agenda and with political affairs rather than with her spiritual distinction and purity. And by doing that, the so-called church ultimately becomes the great harlot riding on the red beast, directing and cooperating with the Antichrist while the faithful church becomes the object of mockery and hatred of the world, it is numerically small and weak, becomes more and more antithetically opposed to the world 
of darkness, even as light opposes darkness. The true spiritual distinction becomes ever more evident. The individual members of the church become clearly seen as strangers and aliens upon the earth who increasingly seek that heavenly perfection. More and more, the place of the church is small in the earth. For the world has tolerance for everyone and everything except the faithful church. And yet the church is holy, even as a temple is holy. And the individual believer is redeemed and justified and sanctified in Christ. So scripture doesn't hesitate to say that those who are born of God are without sin. Even more, they are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. They are heirs of the life to come. They are the family of God, his sons and daughters adopted through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's, Christ's holy bride. Together, they are stones of his temple. And so they are dressed as saints, holy ones, in Christ Jesus. And that's our comfort. Even while we are deeply conscious day by day of our sins and our sinfulness, guilt, even while we are scorned in the midst of this world. Further, the church is one. The generations of the elect of God may extend from paradise in the beginning to the very end of history. And God's people may be gathered from every nation and race of the earth. And outwardly, again with the natural eye, there may seem to be far more division than unity among them. As they are torn apart by sin, schism, evil threats of Satan, yet they are one in Christ, with one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, united unto one God, to whom they bring glory forever. And therefore there is a wonderful communion of saints. That too we confess. The common bond of faith that unites us as true people of God, and we're drawn together We seek each other's welfare through that common bond of faith. And we can sincerely say, this is my father, this is my mother, this is my brother, this is my sister who does the will of my heavenly father. So we bear each other's burdens in the love of Christ. In the third place, we should notice, too, that this building referred to in our text is a temple. Now, a temple can 
impress you because of its size or because of its unique architecture, its majesty. And all this is certainly true of the temple of our God, as will become evident in the new creation. And that multitude that no man can number is united as saints in Christ before the throne of God. But when you get down to it, the real importance of a temple is the fact that it is the house of God. God dwells there. God is the light that shines through the temple. God's glory shines through every part of the building. And so our text speaks of it as the habitation of God. Stresses that the church is God's home. And in a word, God's home means fellowship. There we experience the covenant fellowship of God and his people in Christ. There is the intimate communion of life that is reflected here on earth in the relationships of family, husband and wife, parents, their children. God is in the midst of her. No wonder that the psalmist almost shouted in ecstasy, glorious things of thee are spoken, city blessed of God the Lord. Truly glorious things. For we, beloved, are God's house, God's dwelling place, chosen, prepared to show forth the praises of his name. Although the main thought of our text certainly centers around this house, there's also important emphasis laid upon the foundation. And along with the foundation, upon the cornerstone without which the house of God could never exist or arise to its ultimate perfection. And so our attention is focused especially on this cornerstone. This figure appears more often in the New Testament, along with the figure of the temple. It's taken, no doubt, from Psalm 118. There we read of the stone which the builders refused, how it became the head of the corner. And that's something that stands out as very marvelous in our eyes, just because it is so obviously the work of Jehovah God, his alone, as a wonder of grace. And so it's not difficult to visualize the picture have accumulated all the various material that's going to be used in the building of Solomon's temple. And in the midst of all that construction material, there's one large, seemingly cumbersome stone. And it simply doesn't fit. 
with the plan of the builders. It always seems to interfere, to be in the way with their reckonings. It doesn't fit until the builders learn that it is the chief cornerstone, chosen of God and precious. All of that, of course, was typical prophecy. Its real fulfillment came when Annas and Caiaphas, along with Judas and Herod and Pilate, even with the Sanhedrin, and all the people joined together to condemn Jesus to that accursed death of the cross. They found no place in their idea of the church for Jesus, the Christ of Scripture, no more than do the modernists in our day. And even though they gave him over unto the death, that accursed death of the cross, God justified him. God raised him from the dead. God exalted him with a name which is above every name, even as head of the church in the highest heavens. He is the cornerstone. Now, in ancient times, and it's important for us to remember this, in ancient times, the cornerstone was very important. It was a part of the foundation and building the entire structure. Today, a cornerstone is mainly symbolic. It's more ornamental But according to the figure, as it's used in scripture, the cornerstone is the stone upon which really the entire building rests. And all the other foundation stones lean toward that one massive cornerstone. So that it's the cornerstone that gives stability and unity and even beauty to the entire building. And Christ... Scripture says is that cornerstone. He is chosen of God as the elect, the firstborn among many brethren. God chose us in Christ. He sees us in Christ. He blesses us in him, joins us to him in perfect unity with him eternally. Christ is the rock upon which we are founded. And that's true in the most absolute sense of the word. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is made of God unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. And in one word, redemption. Our life is hid with Christ in God eternally. As we said before, we can speak of a holy church because we are holy in Christ. We can speak of a Catholic church because our unity is in Christ. He is the fullness of all our life and salvation. Now besides that cornerstone, there is also mentioned the foundation. And that foundation is referred to as the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
There's some difference of opinion whether the term prophets here refers to the prophets of the Old Testament times or to those prophets who were there in the days of the early church. And arguments can be made to defend either position. Without going into detail, I'm inclined to think especially of the prophets of the old dispensation here. It is true, as some point out, that the apostles are mentioned first, and then the prophets, while in order of time, the prophets were first. But writing to the church of the new dispensation, the apostle Paul could very well refer to the apostles first because they proclaimed the fulfillment of the promises spoken before of the prophets. Surely the prophets of the Old Testament are as much the foundation of the church as are the apostles of the new. But the more important question arises, what is really meant by these apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church? Surely that cannot refer to them simply as individual persons, but rather, it must refer to them in their office or in their capacity as prophets and apostles. And as such, they were the bearers of the word of God. God filled them with the Spirit so that Christ, the great office bearer, spoke through them. And that which they spoke is infallibly recorded and preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures so that really the Scriptures, the very Word of God, is the foundation of the church. It's all the more evident from the fact that the Scriptures reveal to us On every page, the Christ, who is the rock, the cornerstone upon which the church rests and from which it has all its existence. We cannot emphasize too strongly today that the infallibly inspired word of God as we have it in the Holy Scriptures is the foundation of the church. There are many who deny the infallible Bible along with verbal, word-for-word inspiration. Many even deny the truth as it's set forth in the scriptures. They want no objective truth because they want no objective word. And then God becomes whatever we would like to think he is. And Christ, likewise, becomes almost a figment of the imagination. And faith is no more than personal feeling or experience. And then you see we've lost all, absolutely all that is of any real value in our lives. And from this results the sad tragedy that The power of the word is denied. 
and the church as institute means nothing anymore. Fewer and fewer have a real commitment today to the institute of the church. And then the preaching of the word is neglected or even replaced. And a dialogue or a group discussion or a movie or a play or musical presentations or liturgical dance is considered far more effective than the old-fashioned preaching of the word. And then the office in the church means nothing. Christ's word of power means nothing, and all that remains is a form of godliness lacking the very power of the Spirit of Christ. We must maintain that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The infallibly inspired word of God is the only sure foundation. And the preaching of the word, no matter how it is ridiculed must be maintained as the divinely given means of grace along with the sacraments as instituted by Christ. Christ refuses to work through any other means. Must always go back to the law and the prophets, the word of God, or there will be no dawn for us. The word of God is the only foundation upon which God builds his church. And finally, we must consider, too, the construction of the temple. And our text speaks of this as a process that's carried on throughout history, even to the end of time. Notice, first of all, the builder. We would insist at the outset that the builder is not man. How often he would like to take matters into his own hands and seek his own means to gather the church and take credit for supposedly winning souls for Jesus. Be not deceived. God. God is the only builder. And that's the plain teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 21, where in question 54 we're asked, What believest thou concerning the holy Catholic Church of Christ? And we answer that the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his spirit and word, out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. It's in harmony with all of Scripture, which stresses throughout that the Lord builds his church. We hasten to add that he builds it through Jesus Christ, always Christ, who stands exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high, Christ who knows his sheep and calls them by name, and they come to him and follow him, 
And he speaks of other sheep that he has apart from the elect Jews, which he also must gather in so that there will be eternally one flock and one fold, Jesus, the chief shepherd of his sheep. He gathers them by his word and spirit. Again, always by the preaching of the gospel, through the working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the elect. And there can be no preaching except Christ calls and sends. And those whom Christ calls are official ambassadors of God through whom the Spirit works. We must maintain an official preaching of the word an official administration of the sacraments, and elders and deacons who officially bring the word of Christ in their respective offices. There's no other means of grace. Christ refuses to work in any other way. And today it's incumbent upon us to pray fervently that God will continue to raise up men, perhaps even in our congregation here, to study for the ministry of the gospel. The need is great. And then our text becomes very personal. And it speaks, first of all, of the fact that each of us is builded together for a home or habitation of God in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Word, calls us out of darkness into light, works faith in our regenerated hearts, justifies, sanctifies us, preserves us in a living hope, even to the day of our perfect salvation. It's always the living power of Christ that works in our hearts. We live, yet no more we, but Christ lives in us. And each one grows, as it were, into our own place in the body. And each of us ought to respect and appreciate each other in the particular place that God has given. must honor and appreciate our diversity. Each one is unique. Various gifts and abilities, strengths, also weaknesses. That doesn't mean that we overlook sin or error, but it means that we would deal with it in the proper way according to the scriptures and the church order, It means that we are ready to forgive one another. It means we bear with each other's weaknesses. For each of us is united with all the other members of the body in fellowship and love. And each one of us is being gradually chipped and ground and polished for our own place in God's temple, the place that only we can occupy. When we're ready for that place, 
And that place is ready for us. Heaven cannot wait. And we're transferred from earth, from the church militant, into our own place in the church triumphant before the throne. And in close connection, that means that we, as willing instruments by his grace, are called to work the work of the Lord toward the construction of his house. We, men, women, young people, even children, each in our place, office bearers. At this time, we remember our delegates at Senate, as delegates called to work the work of the Lord in the building of the church. Pray for them. And the decisions that are yet to be made together be willing instruments in God's hand, prayerfully seeking to carry out his will. And the work we do in the church may seem so very insignificant, so insignificant in fact that it may appear to have no real lasting value in the completion of that great temple of our God. You can think of it as the psalmist David did, to be but a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Just to have his foot in the door. We might speak of it as being an usher or an attendant in the nursery. However small and insignificant it may seem in the eyes of men, God, carries out his work even through us. Let us therefore day by day labor prayerfully that together we serve to the praise of the glory of him, of the grace of him who has called us. And so, beloved, I ask again, do you love the church John Calvin remarked in his Institutes that no one can ever claim to have God for his father unless he has the church as his mother. Make no mistake, the church is where Christ is, and Christ is where the word is proclaimed and maintained in truth and purity And don't doubt the power and sufficiency of the faithful preaching of that word. Today, people fear that the word cannot gather the church. They fear that the preaching of the word is not able to keep the youth. They fear that that word cannot comfort and strengthen God's people in all their needs. They fear that it cannot stand the test of so-called science. They fear that scholars will disapprove of that word and mock them. Be not deceived. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. 
Christ and him crucified is still the power of God and the wisdom of God and the preaching of Christ and him crucified is still the way of demonstration of the spirit and of power. Seek and ever abide faithful in the church. Proclaims his word in truth. Love that church. Love this church. Love for the church is like a seed that is sown. It sprouts. It brings forth fruit. But understand that when one would sow that seed in disgust and contempt for God's church, another kind of of fruit is produced a very bitter fruit but by the grace of God when love for the church permeates our homes and our congregation our churches the faithful church throughout the world when it dominates in our lives then by God's grace we see the fruit of Joyful sons and daughters singing with us. Blessed Zion, all our fountains are in thee. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise thee for thy church in Christ. For the wonder of grace whereby thou hast given such sinners as we are a name and place in that body. Bless us by thy word and spirit, we pray, that we may be used of thee, young and old, in all of our various weakness and frailty, to serve thee, to serve thy church. Hasten the day when she is fully builded and brought into all the glory of thy kingdom. We ask it with the remission of our many sins. In Jesus' name, amen.